Obadiah 1 verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Now, I just watched Aladdin with the family two nights ago. Um, You may remember, of course, Disney made the cartoon, but recently they re-released the live-action Aladdin, and that's the one I had seen. I hadn't seen Aladdin since, seriously, I don't know, like, I was still living under my parents' household, so it had been a while, and there was things about the movie and the story I didn't remember. But what's pertinent to what we're looking at tonight is that the villain in Aladdin is Jafar, And Jafar is the ambitious second-in-command in the kingdom. Only the sultan has more power than Jafar. What I really appreciated in the live-action movie was how they emphasized right when you meet Jafar, first scene is his unsatisfaction or his dissatisfaction with being number two. It wasn't enough. He had to be number one. And so, of course, you get to see some of his character as someone's questioning, or is not enough? He throws him down a pit. You're like, ooh, this is a bad guy. And then, uh, as the story goes, Jafar gets the lamp in which there's a genie. And with the lamp, he is able to summon the genie and ask for what he's always wanted, to be the most powerful. Now, he goes a little far, and this is the great climax and end of the movie is that he isn't content enough with Sultan. He isn't content enough with being the greatest sorcerer in the world. He goes as far to say, wait, but the genie is still more powerful than me. So make me a genie. And this is where pride can deceive us. Because Jafar is too proud. He's too eager to be number one and not number two to realize that in reaching for that power, he has overreached. And when the genie makes him into a genie, well, not only does he have phenomenal cosmic power, but now he's restricted to little, tiny living space. (laughs) The genie is the servant of whomever rubs the lamp. And so Jafar, in his pride, was deceived. He thought he was going to be number one, but he found out that he actually landed all the way down at the bottom of servitude. And I love that, because I didn't really remember or catch that in my youth. Like, maybe it was just a complex plot, or I was not very... Maybe they were writing that for more of the American businessman, or whoever's ambitious, or whatever. But, like, I saw that, and it struck me as, like, oh, that's really cool, that he was blinded by his own ambition. And I love that God tells, through Obadiah, we'll get to what he, who he's talking to in a minute, but he says, look... Your pride, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You thought it's taking you up, but it's only going to take you down. The best place to be is not first place. The best place to be is not first place. It's to be in the right place. Now, sometimes Christians talk about humility as the opposite of pride. That's correct. 
But we sometimes think of humility as that timid, shy person who will never even allow anyone to pass a single compliment their way. And woe is me, I'm the dust of the earth. That's not humility. That's really just an ugly version of pride, wanting to get attention. Um, That's why I say the best place to be is not first place, nor is it last place. Because true humility isn't last place. True humility is being in the right place. It's about knowing your place where God has put you and knowing his place and keeping those things in order. Now, Obadiah has a short little message. I guess the proud can't hear more than a few words, so he cuts right to the chase. And Obadiah is right. We don't know anything about him. There's 12 Obadiahs in the Bible. We don't think it's any one of those. So you can't say, oh, Obadiah was a servant of, of Ahab. That's, Obadiah was a common name. It means servant of the Lord. Um, so this is some guy we don't know anything about, except that he had a vision. We don't even know when he wrote. He wrote either in the 800s B.C. or the 500s B.C. Everyone split all the books I read or split equally on either side of those dates. So all in all to say... We don't really know. We just know what he's accusing them of. And you see it in verse 3. But Obadiah is writing to, let's look at it. Chapter 1, there's only one chapter. Verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord Yahweh concerning Edom. He's writing to Edom. Who's Edom? Edom were Israel's neighbors. They were south and east of Israel. So if you think of where the Dead Sea is, they were a bit on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. They lived in a very mountainous, rugged rock area. In fact, some of their buildings were carved into rock. They were the rock people. They were pretty tough. Um, they and Israel were not ever friends, ever. They were rivals, and they fought bitterly to the very end. You're going to see some of what they do in a minute. So let's read the prophecy, and then we'll talk about Edom and their rivalry with Israel. So thus says the Lord Yahweh concerning Edom. We have heard a report from Yahweh, and a message has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. So a message is sent forth through all the nations Let's come and let's fight Edom. So Yahweh sent a messenger. Everyone's teaming up against Edom. In verse 2, Behold, I will make you, Edom, small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares Yahweh. (laughs) You say in your heart, who will bring us down to the ground? And Yahweh's like, all I need to do is flick you with my finger and you'll be down on the ground. Verse 5. Now, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? Think about that, right? A thief breaks in. They can only take what they can carry out before the authorities catch them. They're obviously going to leave some stuff. If grape gatherers came to you, 
would they not leave gleanings? Now, the Jews, when they would uh, harvest their grapes, they would intentionally leave some. They wouldn't sit at every vine till every grape was gone. They would kind of just move at a steady pace and leave some. Uh, the law said that so the poor would come through and have a way of eating. They would be able to pick their own grapes and eat. So yeah, even at the harvest, not everything's picked clean. Yet Esau, or yeah, Esau, Edom, will. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Okay, so now you see um, that Edom is the people of Esau. Do you remember Esau? Esau was Jacob's brother. Jacob has the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Esau has his sons who become the nation Edom. We're going to come back to that brotherly connection momentarily. But a thief doesn't take everything. Harvesters don't take everything. Oh, but Esau, when God comes for you, there's going to be nothing left. So verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. The implication here seems to be they don't have understanding is that they're deceived. They can't see what's happening in front of them because they're proud. The problem with pride, friends, is that you spend too much time looking down on others so that you are actually blindsided to everything else around you. Pride has a blind spot. Now, people who are proud can tend, tend to look very strong, but the more proud you get, the more knowledge you assume to have. And the more knowledge you assume to have, the less there is that you think you don't know. Let, and therefore, there's a huge blind spot. You, you miss things. You don't see things because in your arrogance, I've got that covered. I've, I'm stronger than that. I've risen above those small, petty little things. Edom is going to be deceived. As we saw in verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Now we see in verse 7 that those who were at peace with you have deceived you. So your own friends, your own neighbors, your own treaties, you couldn't see that the whole time they're waiting to stab you in the back. And now you have no understanding. Verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares Yahweh, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, that's a city, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Okay. So Edom's made it very, or Obadiah's made it very clear to Edom. Here's my message. All the nations are gathering together to take you down, O proud one. What has poor Edom done to deserve this? Why such wrath and fury coming their way? Because of their rivalry with God's people. You don't want to mess with God's people. You don't see this as much in the NHL anymore, the National Hockey League. But there was a time when it was a little more vicious. And it was a thing where you do not touch the other team's pretty player, the good player. You don't mess with them. If you rough them, every team had a bully on their bench that the coach would just send out and say, take care of it. <laughs> and I mean, you know how they would enforce that. 
you mess with our star player, our bully will come and enforce that you never do that again. That's why there's fighting in hockey and people don't like that and it's whatever. But some people, all they watch is the fights, I guess. But that's in some ways, that's what God is for his people. He's the enforcer. And he says, all right, the game's playing. You've been messing with my children. You got the wrong dad. They got the wrong, we have the right dad, but they're messing with the wrong dad's kids. Um, so, but, but why? Why is this happening? Because of their rivalry with Israel. So we're going to see this spelled out here in verse 10 through 14. What I want to say before I get there is that from verses 12 to 14, uh, the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from, is the only one, and I couldn't figure out why, but it's the only one that's, that chose to translate these verses um, in an imperative form. Um, your, your, the New King James Version, the NIV, the NLT, um, the New American Standard, basically every mainstream translation I looked up all did this in the past tense. So I'm just going to read it that way for you. So if you're following along in the ESV, you'll notice that I'm switching it to past tense. But, okay, that said, verse 10, here's the reason. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, it's Israel, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Now, what's, what's verse 11 describing? It's describing when Jerusalem was invaded by an enemy. Now, those who see that this book was written in response to Israel's um, Jerusalem's fall to the Babylonians in 586 BC, they're saying, oh yeah, Obadiah is obviously writing after that. There's problems to that dating too, but... Um, for example, Jeremiah writes before the exile, and Jeremiah seems to be quoting portions of Obadiah. That's why there's so much confusion. But nonetheless, what we see in verse 11 is that strangers were carrying off the wealth of Jerusalem. They were looting it. It's like if you remember the L.A. riots and you see people carrying big screen TVs out of stores. That's what's going on. The cameras are, the helicopters are flying over Jerusalem as there's just absolute anarchy. The enemy slaughtered everyone in the cities in flames. And the Edomites are coming out of Walmart with big television sets. And God's like, I saw that. I saw that. And so what he's upset with is that while their brothers, Israel, were being oppressed and sacked and sent into exile, Edom was right there with the enemy, like, oh yeah, we got press credentials too. And they're going in and looting the city. And so therefore, Obadiah says, look, you may not have been wielding the sword, but you were just like them. You were like the invaders. Then it gets worse. In verse 12. Um, You should not have, that's how the New King James reads, you should not have gloated over the day of your brother, in the day of his misfortune. You should not have rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. You should not have boasted in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. 
You should not have gloated over his disaster in the day of his calamity. You should not have looted his wealth in the day of his calamity. And, verse 14 is really sad, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off his, refu- his fugitives. Do not, and you should not have handed over his survivors in the day of distress. Verse 14 pictures Edomites hiding to ambush the refugees fleeing Jerusalem. Maybe going to Mount Seir, the, the capital of Edom. And the Edomites jump out and say, you're not coming here. Whack, whack. And in other scenarios, they're finding Israelites fleeing Jerusalem. They're grabbing them and saying, there's a reward for your kind, and turning them over to the invading enemy. Edom wasn't just mocking Israel. Ha, ha, ha. You fell and we didn't. We're better than you. They were actively participating in the fall of Jerusalem. This is what rivalry does. This is what rivalry rivalry leads us to. It leads us to always needing an ER at the end of whatever we are. An ER. What do I mean? Well, if Israel's rich, I need to be richer. If they're beautiful, I need to be beautifuler. Not fuller, but... (laughs) If they are smart, I need to be smarter. That's what pride is. As C.S. Lewis describes in Mere Christianity, he says that pride is the great sin, not only because it brought Satan down from heaven, (coughs) but because pride is by its nature competitive. It creates rivals where you don't need rivals. So, for example, a greedy man, he says, may simply want something, and once he has it, he has it. But a proud person is not content just having something so long as someone else has more than he has. Pride will keep reaching until you are no longer second best, but first. And so this rivalry with Israel that Edom has, well, you were always the favored ones. You always had the bigger city. You had King Solomon. You had... It's time you get your due. And their pride and their rivalry has caused them to jump in on the action. How about this rivalry? Do you remember how it started? How once upon a time, there was Abraham... And Sarah, and they couldn't have children. But then when they're 100 years old, they do have children. And they have Isaac, whose name is Laughter, because who knew they could have a baby this old? <laughs> and then Isaac marries um, Rebecca, and they can't have children either. But then they pray, and God gives Rebecca more than she was expecting. She has twins in her womb. Jacob and Esau. From the womb, Genesis says, we're wrestling with each other. Oh, Rebecca, no matter which way she slept at night, they just could not get those babies to sit still. No matter what she ate, he couldn't get... At first, she thought it was a spicy Mexican food. 
But it kept going for a week. And then she thought it was, you know. Even the ice cream didn't help after a while. And soon, God prophesies to her. He tells her what's going on. Two nations are in your womb. And the younger will overtake the older. Well, turns out these babies are fighting over pole position. Who's going to be better aligned to come out first? Not you, me. And finally, the day of birth comes. And the hairy one makes it out first. But only by a hair. Because the second one is holding on to his heel as he comes out. As if to say, you're only barely ahead of me. So they named the first one Esau. If I remember right, it just means hairy. And they named the second one Jacob, which means heel catcher. Very literal naming back then. I think a lot of babies would be named Scream Your Head Off if we did that today. But from the very beginning, in the womb, they're fighting. On the way out, they're like, you can't be first. Only if I hold on to your foot do you get out first. And then they grow up, and you can imagine, you know, Jacob was the mama's boy who was in the tent and liked pretty things and was a good cook. And then Esau liked rubbing manure on his face to grow his beard out and didn't care for deodorant and loved to hunt. Anything that moved was huntable. And this was the tale of two very different forms of masculinity. And you can almost see why this happened. Jacob, skipping along, hey, older brother, only by a heel's breadth. <laughs> um, I'm going to go hunting with you. And he's like, no, you're not. No, Jacob, no, you're such a liability. They can smell you. You're cologne. The animals are running away. You won't stop talking. And then he's whining to, Dad, he's going to shoot my eye out if you don't take him away from the bow and arrow. He's a liability. And Isaac's like, yeah, you should stay in the tent with your mother. Esau's a much better hunter than you. And so they're fighting and squabbling. But then, of course, you know this part in the Bible. One day... Esau comes back from a very long hunt, and he's so famished, he will give anything to have what Jacob's making right now at the stove. And Jacob's like, anything? Anything! Those lentils are amazing. I don't know the last time anybody said that about lentils, but (laughs) he was that hungry. And Jacob says, okay, give me your birthright. And then Esau's like, what's a birthright if I die? So... They make a trade. And here's, you know, Esau's little, uh, maybe he's heard too many gun blasts. I don't know, because he's not thinking straight. And Jacob, <laughs> Jacob's grabbing his heel again. Why not just give your brother food? Why do you have to get something out of it? Because they're always fighting for who's in first place. Okay, so the birthright's given up, and Esau doesn't even think about it. He just eats, wipes, and moves on. And then comes the blessing, the patriarchal blessing. It's the communal, I've officially handed the reins over to you, son. Well, Rebecca hears that this is happening, says, Jacob, yeah, mom, you need to steal the blessing. This is your chance. God told me when you're in the womb that the younger would rise up above the older. This is it. By the way, it's not a good idea to try to make God's prophecies come to pass. Um, so they put hair on Jacob and they're like, you feel like him, but you smell too good. Go over to the cow piles. It goes over the cow. You know, and they finally, oh yeah, you smell like Esau, go in. So they give 
um, Isaac stew, and he, Jacob pretends to be Esau, and they trick their father Isaac, and Isaac's like, well, you must be Esau, you stink, and you made good stew, and you feel hairy, so he blesses him. Meanwhile, I, uh, Jacob slips out of the tent, and Esau comes humming along, says, hey, pops, I just got the, the deer, and uh, you're going to bless me soon, I'm, you want jerky or stew, because it depends on how I'm going to prep the deer right now, and he's like, uh, who are you? I'm Esau, aren't you going to bless me? And then dad puts it all together and begins to quiver. And then Esau realizes what his brother had done. He grabbed my heel yet again. And so Esau vows that as soon as dad is dead, I will kill Jacob. Rebecca hears it, goes and warns Jacob and says, you've got to run away to Uncle Laban's house. He's going to kill you. So Jacob runs to Uncle Laban's house. Okay. So, you know, some time goes on there. Then, finally, there's the reunion. Jacob finally gets away from Uncle Laban. He marries. He has kids. He has livestock. Jacob has become wealthy. And he gets word that Esau's coming to meet him. They haven't spoken since Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing from his older brother. And when Jacob hears that Esau's coming with 400 armed men, he thinks, it's the end. But when they do meet, Esau seems to forgive Jacob and says, I don't need all these gifts you're trying to buy me off with. And they hug and embrace and say, let's catch up. Let's go to my mount, Mount Seir, and let's let's catch up over. uh, We have this stuff called coffee. It's pretty cool. And Jacob's like, "Um, yeah, sounds good. But on the way over, Jacob veers off path and they don't talk again. Once again, he kind of backstabs his brother like, yeah, we'll hang out, but he doesn't. So that's the tale of the brothers. Jacob becomes Israel. Esau becomes Edom. Well, King um, Saul, the first king of Israel, has some skirmishes with the Edomites. So we see the rivalry continuing. And then King David, it says, goes and actually subdues the Edomites and takes them over under the great kingdom of King David. But then King Solomon, you may remember the third king, he had this fondness for women, and they led his heart away from God. And so what God did is he allowed, fine, if women are what you want, then the walls of your nation are coming down. And so the Edomites revolted. They began to revolt under King Solomon, and so the skirmishes continued. And then throughout the kings, um, you will see moments where one side's winning, the other side's winning. And one time it got bad enough where 10,000 Edomites were slaughtered, and the other 10,000 were thrown off the cliff of their home. It was a very vicious rivalry. And now we see, to God, the apex of this rivalry up to this point is that the Edomites said, ha, 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 Israel thought they're better than us for a while, but now we're better. So let's go loot this city. They get their due. So the pride of their heart, that we must be first place, is what to God does them in. Pride stokes rivalry. Now, competition's fine and dandy in its place. I think that's one of the reasons God gave us sports. It was so that we have a way to be competitive without hurting society. But when that competitiveness goes into our colleges and into our businesses and into our politics and into our churches, 
we have a mess. Rivalry does not belong with the people of God. That kind of pride of, I need to be in first place, does not belong. And when we're in second place, just grab their heel and wait till they fall. That does not belong. We flash forward a little bit after Obadiah's prophecy of doom over Edom. And we find the final scene of this rivalry. It comes to its climax. It's no longer just brothers, nor is it just nations. So Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom. But now it's kings in rivalry. At the time that Jesus, an Israelite, the king of the Jews, was born, there was another king named Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was half Jewish and half Edomite. And so when he hears that Jesus is born, what does he want to do? Racks the rivalry up to another level. Kill all the babies in Jerusalem. That'll show them. Herod is a prime example of what happens when we're proud. You always have to fight to defend. You're always in some sort of competition, some sort of rivalry, even when you are in first place and you're king of the Jews. All Jerusalem trembled, it says in Matthew 2, when they heard the wise men say, hey, there's a king born, we've come to see him. And Jerusalem goes, oh. Another king? Oh, no. We know what Herod does when there's a rivalry. And so Herod does, right? He kills all the baby boys of Bethlehem. Herod was ruthless. This is what pride does. Pride not only seeks to be in first place, but when it's there, it's always looking down and around to say, you will never be equal. I always have to be better. Always looking for that ER. Richer, better, more powerfuler, whatever. Herod's an example. So Herod is given the title king of the Jews by Caesar. But Herod is never satisfied. He's never quite secure. So what he does is his favored wife, Miriam, whom he married because she was a Jew to make the Jews happy with him, uh, she was his favorite wife. But he killed her because she suspected that she was trying to take the throne from him. Then, Miriam had two sons. And these two sons, Herod killed. Because they were suspected of trying to upstage their father. Herod was also known for ruthlessly slaughtering people in the streets if there was an expected coup. Anything that came to his ears, he was paranoid. He was so mad that Caesar himself said about Herod, well-known saying, it's safer to be Herod's pig than it is to be his son. And then, of course, you probably heard that at Herod's death, he's afraid that no one would mourn his death, so he ordered everybody around him to be executed when he died. Fortunately, everyone had the common sense to realize he's dead, he can't carry out the order, so no one died. But Herod was ruthless. Because of this pursuit of being first place, he was always having to work so hard. I achieved what I got, and he did. He had to do a lot of politicking in Rome to get the position that he was in. I achieved this, I worked hard for this, I will not give it up. 
That's one of the things I loved about the Aladdin movie. Jafar became a little more complex of a character in the live action because Jafar goes as far to say stuff like that. He was once a nobody, but he worked really hard to rise to second in power. So I deserve to go even further. I deserve this because I earned it. I achieved it. I've made myself this person. Herod made himself the king of the Jews. So he can conquer any rivalry. That's the pride of Edom. And that's the pride we see in its fullest fruition. Now we go forward a little bit. Herod the Great, his name, of course, is ironic, isn't it? Herod the Great is dead. His son is now reigning. They keep calling him Herod. Um, His son is now the one that faces the adult Jesus. And you might remember in the Gospel of Luke, um, the Pharisees said, you better look out. Herod doesn't like what you're doing. And Jesus snaps and says, you go tell that vixen that I'll do what I want. Female fox is what he calls Herod. And then in Luke later, this is only in Luke, Jesus stands before Herod at his trial, before his death. And Herod says, come on, come on, do a miracle for me. I've heard all about you. Come on, magic trick. Let's go entertain me. And Jesus says not a single word to Herod. Here we have the last scene of the king of Edom and the king of Israel squaring off. And Herod is enraged because the king of Israel will not even give him a minute of his time. So Herod then begins to mock Jesus and orders that Jesus be hit. The rivalry continues. But the rivalry will come to an end, Obadiah says. So now we're in verse 15. Verse 15, for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. Now, we've seen this day of Yahweh, and it's terrifying. He warned them in Amos, oh, don't think you want the day of Yahweh. You might remember this. The day of Yahweh is like being chased by a lion or a bear to hide in your house only to find that the wall is a serpent. That's, that's how he compares the day of the Lord to people in trouble. The day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. In Joel, by the way, we saw the day of Yahweh portrayed vividly in which all the nations are gathered in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means Yahweh is judge, and there they are judged, and there's a wine press uh, indicating that the judgment's like the pressing of wines, an image that Revelation picks up later in the Bible. Um, so the day of Yahweh is the day of judgment. It's the day of his coming. And so um, for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations... Edom and all of them, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Oh. So, Edom, you laughing now as you loot Jerusalem? As you have done, it shall be done to you. The proud never think that's true. Because the proud think they're on top. The proud think they've got a handle on things. They're deceived. They're blind to the coming day when, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. I said this in Joel, um, but it's worth saying again. I do believe the picture in Joel and of Revelation of the judgment being like a wine press is that the grapes being like the nations that are judged and then the juice being what comes out of them. Well, in Revelation, in Joel, you just see the wine press, but in Revelation, after the wine press, you see the bowls of judgment and then they're poured upon the earth. 
you can't, I don't know that you can prove this, but it, to me it implies that the juice from the wine press is what's being poured out of those bowls in judgment. And if that's so, what you have is this. What you have done is now being done to you. Um, your own deeds shall return on your own head. So the deeds that came out in your judgment are now being poured back upon the people. Makes us think twice. Do you really want to be in a rivalry? Verse 16, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. I believe the imagery there is that they just keep on drinking till they die. By the way, um, interesting if you think about the wine press again. Verse 17, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So verse 17, there's hope, right? Some are not going to be judged. God will deem them righteous, and they shall reclaim what they lost. In verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. Fire and stubble don't mix well. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken. 19. Now, there's going to be a lot of regions that you're not familiar with. You could find them on a map, but what I want you to see is the main point. It's going to describe these regions as basically saying, people from this region are going to take this region, and all you need to know is that it's saying, those who have lost their land will now claim some land. This is the future of God's return when the righteous will inherit the earth, as Jesus said, right? Blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, I'm sorry, blessed are the um, poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. So this is what we see. 19. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Shephard, shall possess the cities of the Negev. And saviors, this is verse 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. The end. Oh man, what an ending verse. Can't you say more? I was looking at this over and over, wishing it would say more. Think of, okay, imagine this for a minute, how tantalizing this ending is. For 20 verses, we have this, Edom did poorly, your arrival with your brother, judgment is coming. Some people are going to be spared, they're going to inherit the earth. And then there will be saviors and they'll rule over Mount Esau and the king will be the Lord's end. It's like, wait, 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 all this judgment, all this like, God's bringing... He's exacting, if you want to say revenge, I guess you can. What you did to others is coming upon you. And then at the very end, it's like, ah, but wait, it'll be good. It'll all be good in the end. And it's almost, this is what I'm wondering. It's almost as if verse 21 is the warning to us. The whole book has been about, hey, don't be Edom. But then there's a warning to us saying, wait a minute, though. 
before you start cheering and becoming the cheerleaders and waving your pom-poms over God's judgment over your rivals, saying, ha-ha, we were right, we are better after all, watch the language, because you're now proud like them. So instead of doing that, because I don't think that's the way God's going to deal with things, it's almost like this last verse is warning us to say, wait a minute, there are rivals, but there are also royals. God wants people to be of a certain quality that can rule and reign with him in his kingdom. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. Who are the saviors? Now, half of the translations actually, excuse me, not the translations. Um, the, remember we talked last week about the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible? And how around, a little before Jesus, the Jews were like, well, we all speak Greek, so let's try to translate the Hebrew to Greek. Well, what happened is, in the Greek version of this verse, it's called the Septuagint, um, it actually says the saved. Not saviors, but the saved. So the ones rescued, the ones that weren't judged because they were gods. Um, or the saviors, are the saved the saviors? And how many saviors are there? Isn't there just one savior? It's, it's, see, it's very vague, is what we're trying to point out here. All we know is that there are people whom apparently are in a position to receive authority because they go up Mount Zion. I can imagine that's, that's Jerusalem where Christ is ruling and reigning. They go up to his throne to rule Mount Esau. In other words, you have this picture of people who've been rescued or are the rescuers, and they go to Jesus, and he gives them their commission. You shall rule over this land. You shall rule over that land. But Mount Esau's mentioned here because it's the warning of, don't just celebrate your victory over some rivalry. Realize you're more than a rival. You're a royal. And that God is grooming us and cultivating in us through the work of his spirit, the qualities necessary to be Jesus's commissioned rulers of his kingdom. Now, do you think Jesus is looking for people like Jafar, people like Esau, people like Jacob to be his rulers? He showed us who he's looking for in Jesus Christ. This was the true deliverer, the true savior that emerged from the line of Jacob, that emerged from the rivalry as the only one who did not advance the cycle of revenge. Jesus ended the cycle of their rivalry by taking the blows. He hung on the cross to say, the rivalry is finished. It's done. My people are now going to come together as one. And if they don't want to, that's their choice. They can exclude themselves from my kingdom. But my people are going to seek to rule and reign with me, to be the royal heritage, to inherit the earth with me, to be the sons and daughters of the king with me, to be co-heirs, Romans says. That means joint heirs, heirs with Jesus of everything that he owns. My people will be royal if they come to the foot of the cross. To rule, Mount si- to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. That's how we know that this will be a right rule, because it's Yahweh's kingdom. 
It's not Herod's kingdom of revenge, of kill everyone I'm paranoid of. It's not Jafar's kingdom of seize all the power till I'm the most powerful. It's the kingdom of Yahweh's as shown future for uh, later in the New Testament as shown in Jesus Christ. This is the small little window, the small little glimpse of what's to come. So we have rivals, we have royals. The question, church, is which are we going to be living as? I hinted a little bit at what they look like. The rival achieves first place. That's what the rival does. He's always trying to achieve first place. I'm going to fight for it, I'm going to earn it, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be smarter, I'm going to be faster, I'm going to be... And then they get there, and then they hold it. And we have, we have a culture defined by rivalry. We have a culture that has gotten to the point where pride is no longer something we caution each other over. It's something we admire as a virtue. We admire the self-made person. We admire the person who seizes opportunity to better themselves no matter the cost. And many of our stories today, via the silver screen, um, are about the person who's trying to be better than everybody, and we applaud their heroic journey on the way. Not all of them, but some of them are definitely that. We as a culture have gotten to the point where we Accept pride. We want that in a president, if you will. There's no, and I'm not bashing any specific person. There's not a candidate alive that isn't on the platform of pride. I'm awesome. I'm better than everybody else. Um, it's scary that sometimes pride can just go unnoticed because it's just become so common. Achievement, achievement, achievement. My identity is something I own. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that our identity is not something we own. It's something that we're given. It's something that we receive. It's something that God chooses and passes on to us. And so the royal, while the rival is seeking desperately to achieve, is seeking to be in first place, the royal is seeking to receive They're not making themselves royalty. They're receiving it by virtue of the God they worship. Who looks at them and says, you are my son, you are my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Let me give you the gift. Let me bestow upon you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you who you are. You are loved and you have a purpose here. And I want to use you, not just in this life, but in the next to come. I have so much in store for you. Phenomenal cosmic power. And you'll be as free to do with it as you please. That's why I need people who are not proud, God says. Um, So the royal receives their identity, receives the best place. Not first place, they simply receive the best place. The best place is whatever God gives you. That's your place. So we don't need to go around 
trying to deflate ourselves, saying, woe is me, everybody, ignore me. And talk about how miserable we are and share broadly about how much we sinned this week. We don't, we don't have to go down that route. We don't have to be all swarmy and I'm just some humble little spiritual saint. <laughs> That's not the idea. We're to receive the right place that God's given us. Where has he put you? What talents has he given you? Do you know it's not pride to say thank you when someone compliments you? Humility understands its place. Um, if you're playing baseball and someone says, wow, you're an awesome baseball player, pride would say, well, golly, I guess I am a bit different than everybody else here. It starts to see itself up a notch. I'm better. But humility takes that as if it was said about anybody else on the team. Humility sees a unity and equality in all people, so it can take a compliment as if it was given to the whole. That's humility. Humility is not, oh, no, 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 I'm the worst here. Ah, you're doing something like pride. You're distancing yourself from the group. You may not be calling yourself better than the group, but you're calling yourself worse than the group. And the cross says, forbid that. Forbid that, because I am bringing all people together at the foot of the cross. As Romans goes so far to say that all are equal at the cross because all have sinned. It's not a contest of who is the biggest sinner, who has the best testimony, who has sinned the least, whatever. It's none of that. Everyone, it's the, okay, the rivals like to draw a line and say you're on top and you're on bottom. But the royals draw a circle and say we're all here, we're all equal. Because this is the shape of God and the Trinity, sharing their love with one another. He does the same with us, and he's calling us into a family. This is what it looks like. So, um, we receive the best place as that which God has us right now. So the gifts he's given you, boom, use them right there and own up to them. Stop your false humility saying, I don't have anything good going for me. I can't do anything. You are letting the devil talk for you. So he's given you stuff. He's given you a place. Whatever your lot is, it's the... If God's brought you there, it's the best place. How do you know if he's brought you there? Well, you haven't resisted what he's trying to do, and you didn't fight for it. If it was received, if God has led you, then you know you did not seek it out of um, inordinate ambition or out of pride, but you received it in humility, and you know your place the right place, the best place, being at the foot of the cross. Jesus is the only exalted one, and we are all equal underneath him. He's calling all of us to rule and reign with him someday. The question is, is that enough? Or are we going to pursue the path of the Edomites? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we... As we congregate to take now your last supper we're reminded that in 